There's something that makes it special. And the Hebrew word is Shekinah. The Shekinah glory of God falls upon his people when they gather in community. Now, it doesn't have to be to sing or to read scripture. It doesn't have to be those things. In fact, the Talmud, which is not scripture, but it's a Jewish book of of wise teachings, the Talmud says this, that the Shekinah, in Hebrew it means the dwelling of God's glory, the Shekinah will fall where there are ten people gathered to pray. So the Talmud teaches that. You get ten people in a room. I don't think it works at nine, but you get ten. They start to pray. The Shekinah, the dwelling of God, will fall in that place. The Talmud also teaches that where three come together to judge, a small supreme court, but if they come to judge on a topic, then the Shekinah, the dwelling of God's glory, will fall on that. So it has to do with community. I am not saying that there is a special manifestation of God's glory that happens when we gather in community to worship. I'm not saying that. But I am saying there is a unique, a unique dwelling of God's glory. God dwells and resides in us. His Holy Spirit dwells deeply and richly within us. That is his glory. I get that. But his Shekinah, that falls when we gather together. It takes more than one of us. And here's the truth, church. Whether you knew it was called the Shekinah glory of God or not, whether you had any clue about that word, whether you're trying to still figure out what I'm saying, some of you have sensed it. Some of you have sensed that unique dwelling of God's glory when you gather with people to worship. You've sensed it. You couldn't put your finger on it, but you're like, that's special. That's, u- that's unique. That's, that's good. I'll take that. And so that's why we gather. We gather to sing. We gather to pray. We gather to teach the word or preach, depending on the words you want to use. We gather to encourage one another. We gather to respond to the teaching of the word and to the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We gather together to take the sacraments, to to take the body and the blood or the bread and the cup. We gather together for that purpose. We gather together to celebrate in baptism. We, We have a bunch of stuff that we do and all of them are just little pieces of a pie that forms what we call corporate worship. It's a beautiful thing. But how do we do it? Scripture is not silent. It is not silent on what we should do as we gather together for this thing called corporate worship. John 4, verse 23 is probably the most uh, dedicated verse of Scripture to describing what worship in a corporate setting should look like. He says this, Jesus speaking to the woman at the well, a time is coming and has now come, it's here, it's present, when the true worshipers, so there's false worshipers? Absolutely. And they're not just worshipers that worship false gods. There are fakies sitting in this room who are doing everything within their power to go through the forms and the motions to appear to be a worshiper of God. But the true worshipers of God, there's a time coming when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Those are the two governing characteristics of true worshipers. They will worship in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. Now notice that last little phrase, you could look over that so quickly. But do you see that? That's the first main thing I want you to understand about corporate worship. It is God who is seeking out worshipers. It is not us who is shouting out to try to wake up God on Sunday morning going, hey, hey, it's 10 o'clock. 
We're down here. Hey, are you going to listen to this? It's good stuff today. We're singing that one song. We don't do that. God is seeking us out. And what that tells me is this. Worship is our response to a divine initiative. God's seeking, God's doing, God's initiating, and we're simply responding to it. Yet we're responding in two forms, in spirit and in truth. We need the spirit because we can do all the right stuff. We can say all the right words. We can do all the right things. But until his spirit touches our spirit, until deep calls out to deep, until there is some kind of connection between man and God, worship has not occurred. We've just sang and shouted and prayed. But there has to be a touch, there has to be a spirit, there has to be a connection. Singing, praying, praising, they may lead to worship, they very well might do that, but worship is more than any of these things. Our spirit must be ignited by a divine fire that we call the Holy Spirit. Our spirit is ignited by his spirit and worship happens. That's why the spirit is necessary for true worship. Truth is also necessary because worshiping the Lord begins with a correct view of who God is and what he has done. Those two components are vitally important. Worship in truth requires us to know who God is and what he has done, because when we get a glimpse of who he is and start to put that into perspective and we see what he's done, our soul's natural response is one of praise and worship. That's why worshiping in spirit and truth are so important. Romans 12, 1, the passage that you were like, I think I know that one. It says, therefore... I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in light of God's mercy, because you know of God's mercy, because you understand who he is in truth, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and your proper worship. Spirit and truth are both parts of worship. We praise God for who he is, and we thank him for what he has done. So that's what governs, in a big picture level, our worship, our corporate worship. That God wants true worshipers, we can't do anything until he initiates it, and that we're going to need to work in two main arenas of spirit and truth in order to fully get this worship thing. But there are steps. There are things that we can do to prepare ourselves for worship. And it begins long before you ever walk into this room. It begins with something that Scripture refers to as a holy expectation. It starts with a holy expectation. Do, do you understand this? Rewind 2,000 years. When the first church, they're just trying to figure it out. They don't have screens and keyboards. They don't have rundowns. They don't know what they're doing. But they know that Jesus has said, you need to go and gather together for community and for support. You need to do that. Do you want to know how their worship services began? Read Acts chapter 4. They got in a room and they just sat there. Silent. But every person in that room, their hearts were united around this one thing. A holy expectation. Not only did they believe, they knew that because they had gathered together and because all of them present were desiring for the same move of God, they knew that God was going to move. And he did it in tangible and incredible ways. One time, specifically in Acts, they're sitting there waiting, and the way that God showed up for the worship service was he shook the earth. He caused an earthquake to happen. They're like, there he is. I guess we can begin. 
We were waiting for you, Lord, and, and, and here you are. You shook the very foundations of the earth. That's holy expectation. They knew, the first church knew that Jesus was going to be present in their gatherings. And they knew because he was there that Jesus was going to teach them in those gatherings that the Spirit was available to restore them, to heal them, to bring peace, and to offer power to their gathering. They knew all that, so instead of just manipulating it and working it out for themselves and figuring out, oh, we'll do this, this, they just sat there and waited and they're like, whatever you tell us to do, Jesus, we're in. It's pure and it's good. But fostering this expectation in your heart where you come in and just sit and wait on God to move, it requires you to seek God's glory and his presence in your everyday life. It's going to be very difficult for you to walk in here having not engaged in God at all throughout the week and just be like, okay. The reason you feel nothing is because for the last six days there's been nothing. It's going to be nearly impossible. Brother Lawrence, who devoted his life to trying to practice the presence of God, trying to be in the presence of God 24-7, he never quite made it, never quite made it a full 24 hours fully connected to the presence of God. He never made it because you want to know the method by which he thought he could connect to the presence of God by doing his everyday life. One of his famous phrases is this, if I can meet God in the kitchen, how much more can I meet him in the sanctuary? If, if while I'm peeling potatoes, I can be communing with the Father, how much more so when I walk into the sanctuary am I going to be ready to roll? The truth is evident. Far more. We need to be conscious of God's presence in our everyday life. We need to make every effort, every effort to be listening to his words, to his speech. We need every action to be devoted to him. When we do that, when we do that, when we listen to his teachings every minute of every day, how much more will we walk in here and want to hear him? How much more will we walk in here and want to respond to him? It's just a natural outflowing of our life. It's how we live. So when we come in here, it's just going to be that much easier. You go, but hold up. There's a dude that sits right here, and he plays this thing, and, and he leads us. He, he's the worship leader. You, we pay him to lead the worship. If he says to stand up, I stand up. If he, if he says to sing louder, we sing louder. If he says it's time to pray, we pray. If he says shake someone's hand, guess what? I'm shaking their hand. I don't even know him. So is, is Nick the worship leader? I can tell you this. He's wicked good. I despise, oh, I despise when pastors brag about their staff to make them look better. So um, this has nothing to do with Nick being our worship leader. Vocally and musically, I would put him up against anyone in the world. And he's sitting here in Newcastle with us. But he's not our worship leader. Because as good as he is, as unbelievably talented as he is, 
if we're following him, we just went to a concert. He didn't even, he didn't make you buy a ticket. Like, you just, you just took him. If we're following him, we just went to a concert. The worship leader at this church is Jesus Christ. He leads the worship. And, and Nick does everything within his power to make sure that he is hearing God for those who are not. And, and he leads as he senses God leading. And so it, it does work in such a manner. But just hear this. It's not him. Jesus determines the order. Jesus calls people to preach and prophesy and sing and pray. This is because Jesus alone will be honored and exalted in this place. There's no room for human exaltation. There isn't just any room for that in corporate worship. There's no room for my personal thoughts to be in here. There's no room for my ego or pride. There's no room for cliches and schemes and niches. Let's get people in the door. Let's do that. There's no room for that because Jesus is the one leading it. And when we start muddying the water, it makes it hard for you to see him. That's on us because of this. If God does not raise up inspired leaders who can guide people into worship with authority and compassion, then the experience of worship will be nearly impossible. We take very seriously what we do up here, and all we want to be is a conduit for Jesus. So it's not me preaching. It's not Nick leading worship. It's Jesus leading. And because of that, here's the, here's the beautiful part. You can expect that every week. If I'm not here, it's cool. Jesus still will be. If Nick's out doing something, it's fine. Jesus is still leading here. You can expect the same thing every week because Jesus is the one who's leading. He will manifest himself during worship. And when Jesus is here, here's what's going to happen. He's going to teach you. He's going to sometimes rebuke you. He's going to comfort you and encourage you. He's going to be the prophet and the priest and the shepherd and the bishop. He's going to be all the functions that Jesus is. He's going to be those things. He is going to heal us emotionally and physically. He's going to do all this, and he's going to do it through the leaders that he raises up. And it's a beautiful picture of corporate worship, but he is the worship leader. And you follow him, not me. Not me. There are some steps, though, that consistently will allow us to position ourselves to be led by Jesus. We need to respond to the touch of the Holy Spirit in order for worship to occur, so we need to position ourselves in a way that that will happen. Two steps, okay? Pay attention. Step one, you need to do this every time you enter into corporate worship. It doesn't have to be here. It can be in your home. It can be wherever, but anytime you're entering into corporate worship, step one, we need to still or quiet our creaturely activity. And, and hear this. I didn't put fleshly activity. I didn't put sinful nature because that's not all that there is. We just need to slow down. Some of you come in here running a billion miles an hour. You screech in and then pick right back up. It's a touch and go kind of a worship service. You, you have not engaged. You have not slowed yourself. You have not listened at all. We need to still or silence all that is us. If we are accustomed to carrying out our daily activities that are a part of our lives by our own strength, 
I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, I gotta do this. If we're accustomed to doing that, we will try to do the same in worship, which makes worship very hard because it's a divinely initiated thing. What God is looking for is the soul that says a hundred times a day, and you can get there. A hundred times a day, Lord, what would you have me do now? Is that, is that how you live every breath of your life? I'm going, I'm doing, but really, I'm not doing it. Lord, what would you have me do now? What would you have me say? What would you have me do? Where would you have me go? What would you have me think? Lord, what would you have me do now? Habakkuk 2, verse 20 says this, The Lord is holy in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. When we walk into this place with a holy expectation, I think one of the first things we should do is just sit silently instill all of our creaturely habits, all of our creaturely expectations, all all that, we just silence them and we wait expectingly for God and we say, Lord, what would you have me do this moment, in this place, in this time? When we've done step one, then we can move to step two and that is to praise. To praise the Lord is a part of corporate worship. We sing, we shout, we dance, we rejoice, we adore so all those things are languages of praise. They're part of corporate worship. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, your God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into wonderful light. You have been gathered for many purposes, but one of them is to declare the praises of the One who called you out of darkness and into light. Praise is a part of corporate worship. We've been gathered to do that. Singing is not necessarily praise, but singing, why we spend time singing is because it moves us into praise. Singing centers us and stops our minds from being fragmented. Now here's the beauty of some of you schizos. You can be singing and thinking about something completely different. But for those of you who are more like me, simple-minded. If I'm singing, singing, looking at the lyrics, seeing the visual worship that's happening behind, most of the time, everything else is silenced. I'm focused. I'm centered. I'm not as fragmented as when I'm just walking down the street. That's one of the main benefits of singing. It moves us towards praise. Within praise, you are free to use whatever forms will enhance your worship. But if any form, if any thing, if any posture, if it hinders you from experiencing the living Christ, too bad for that form. If what you're doing is hindering you from worship, stop doing that. That's bad. But within Christ's Anything you want to do in worship is free game. However, church, since true worship is wholehearted worship, it probably will engage your body some. Okay, now, for those of you who are just like, nope, I don't sing because I sound like a dog being hit by a truck. I don't move because I have no rhythm. I don't clap. Same rhythm problem. I don't lift my arms because I forgot deodorant. I don't. 
just generally what you're going to see me do is this. So just back off. Okay. I can't back off because it's God. And when you get that, this It's my phone. That's not very honoring. It's not worship. I mean, that's, that's just not it. The worship will probably engage the body. The Hebrew word for worship in the Old Testament, the word for worship is to prostrate. Not prostate, okay? Prostrate. There's an extra R, at least. Literally, that means to fall face down. To fall face down is the root word for worship. So, if you're in the Old Testament and you hear the Hebrew word for worship, the picture you get is someone laying face down on the ground. That involves more of the body than anything I can think of. That, that's what was evoked when you said worship. The word bless, the Hebrew word for bless, means to kneel. When's the last time you knelt in worship? If you ever have, you probably felt this immense sense of blessing. You're not being blessed. You're blessing God, and you're doing so because you're on your knees going, you are so good. It's, it's interesting. The word, the Hebrew word for thanksgiving means to extend one's hands. Thank you. Just look at the posture. It shouts, thank you. It shouts it. These are not by accident that these root words are forms and postures that the body would go through in order to worship. There are many forms and postures. Laying prostrate is one. Standing is another form of worship mentioned in Scripture. Kneeling is a form mentioned in Scripture. Lifting of hands is a form mentioned in Scripture. Lifting the head, raising the eyes to God is a form, but so is bowing the head. Both are forms of worship in response to who God is. Both are equally good forms. Dancing, and then my favorite, wearing sackcloth and ash. <laughs> First fool that brings a burlap sack and a can of ashes, and I'm just like, you're up here. <laughs> Get a tarp. More power to you. Freedom in Christ. Um, but all of those are mentioned in Scripture. They're all forms that will help us engage in worship. People will say, that's not me. That's not me. You think worshiping that recklessly is, is not for me. Question. It's simple. Should you be asking what kind of worship fits you and who you are? Or should you be asking what kind of worship is appropriate for God? It's not about you. It's not about you. Do you want to know the darndest thing? The reason we're reserved in worship is not because we feel prompted by God to be reserved. 
but because we fear what the person sitting next to us might think. 100% of the time. It's not because you think God will laugh at you if you're off beat or something. This is nothing, you're not, no, no one fears that. What you fear is the person sitting right behind you or right in front of you, right beside you. You fear it. But it's not about you. So as a discipline, as a discipline, corporate worship, why do we do it? What would the fruit of this discipline be? Each, each discipline has a fruit. What would the fruit of corporate worship be? Your initial response is, God getting glory. True, but that is not the fruit. Uh-uh. Do you know what the fruit of corporate worship is? Obedience. Obedience. Think about it. If you walk in here and for an hour, you are prompted by the Spirit. You are doing what the Spirit calls you to do. You feel the freedom to do so. You're not moved and swayed by what others are thinking. You're just engaged in responding to God in obedience to Him. How much more so will you walk out and be able to do that in the world? Much more so. The fruit of corporate worship is obedience. Corporate worship begins with holy expectation and it ends with holy obedience. You walk in expecting, you walk out living life to the full, humbly and obediently. In corporate worship, we open ourselves to an adventurous life in the Spirit, one that I think some of us desperately, desperately need. And in this time, you can get a taste of that life in the Spirit, and that is the life that God created us to live. The discipline of corporate worship will help us, help us learn what it means to live life in the Spirit and therefore live life in holy obedience.